I'd like to welcome all of you who are here for the very first time. I just want to let you know that we are studying a series of um, uh, texts from the Gospel of John. And within John, uh, we are studying a particular theme, and that is the theme of transformation, change. How many of you realize that in Christ, everything's about change? We don't just stay the way we are. There's a saying, Jesus accepts us just as we are. 예수님은 우리를 우리 이 모습 이대로 받아주셔요. But he does not leave us as we are. 그러나 우리를 그냥 내버려 두지 않으시고 예수님은 우리를 계속 계속 발전시켜 주시고 변화시켜 주시는 것입니다. So we must rejoice in the fact that God is in the business through Jesus Christ of changing or transforming us. I know people don't like the term change. We just want to stay where we are in our comfort zone. Uh, please leave me alone so that I can do it in my own way, in my own time. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus does not leave us to our convenience. He's the Lord, and in, according to his way and his time, he decides to progressively transform us. So last time I spoke, I spoke um, on the theme of transformation, uh, taking the story of Jesus transforming water into wine. Today, I'm going to talk about a very similar theme. Actually, the story we're about to read today uh, is back to back with the previous story. And the story that we'll read next week will be back to back with this story. And all of them are about transformation. Today, I entitled the message, Jesus' Way of Purification. 예수님의 방식 정화. And that will be the topic for today. And the text is chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. And this is the famous story of Jesus purging the temple. This is one of those rare moments in the gospel stories that we see Jesus becoming angry, indignant, furious, and he becomes violent. And we're going to see why Jesus uh, acted out in such a way. In verse 12, we need to understand the context of this episode. And we do that by studying a very brief text here in verse 12. It reads, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. 그 후에 예수께서 그 어머니와 형제들과 제자들과 함께 가버나움으로 내려가셨으나 거기에 여러 날 계시지 아니하시니라. You know, the unique thing about the Gospel of John is that the author, John, does not depict the story of Jesus or the ministries of Jesus in the region of Galilee in length. It's very, very brief. He just touches upon few situations and then he moves on so that he can focus on Jesus' ministry in the region of Judea, that is south of Galilee, and particularly focusing upon Jerusalem. So if you're going to write an entire biography of someone, you don't just focus on one city. That's like someone writing about me and focusing all my stories on what happened in Seoul or in Los Angeles. And that's not a comprehensive understanding of my life. 
and neither is John. John is not trying to write a comprehensive biographical story because we already have those stories in the other three Gospels. He has a purpose and meaning when he selects these episodes in the life of Jesus because he's trying to make a solid theological point. So, he simply says that Jesus, after that incident in Cana, he goes to Capernaum with his relatives and his disciples. And they stay there for a few days. Now, what is Capernaum? Capernaum, we find through uh, the information given in the other Gospels that it was the headquarters of Jesus in Galilee. Now, John does not say this. Other Gospels talk about how he was rejected in his own hometown, Nazareth. And so he had to move his headquarters to Capernaum, which was situated in the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And from there, he reached out to all of Galilee. And there are lengthy, lengthy stories written about that in the other Gospels. But here, it just says, well, Jesus spent a few days in Capernaum. And then moves right into his ministry in the region of Judea and particularly Jerusalem. So in verse 13, we read, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now the interesting thing we discover in this gospel is that that there is a mention of Jesus visiting Jerusalem for the Passover some three times. And it is implied that perhaps he went to Jerusalem many number of times to attend all sorts of religious festivals. You know, according to the Gospel of Luke, it talks about Jesus at the age of 12 on the Passover. During the Passover event, he got lost in the temple. And so what we see is that Jesus probably traveled and visited Jerusalem where the temple was. And this was a very important and very symbolic thing for Jesus. He must have visited so many times. And what do you think he did when he visited Jerusalem and he visited the temple? What would you do if you were to visit the, the most important symbol of your country? Most important locale in your nation. What would you do? We, first of all, we would sightsee. And we would enjoy the food, we would enjoy the culture, we would enjoy the historic uh, monuments and buildings. But I think what Jesus did in Jerusalem was he watched and observed all these years, some 30 years, he would visit constantly. He would be watching and observing and perhaps became very familiar with the scene, what was happening. And do you think the scene has changed much in those years? No, it probably became a, a routinized way of worshiping God. And this is exactly what Jesus witness every time he visited Jerusalem. And at this moment, now he's visiting Jerusalem on the day, on the, the period of Passover. 
And so today, I want to take this particular episode in the life and ministry of Jesus, and I want to make three points. First point that I would like to make is that Jesus is in the business of purifying our locus of worship. 예수님은 우리의 예배 장소를 정화시킨다. But I don't want you to get too fixated on this term, locus or place, because it's not quite what it means. But right here, it has to be a place. It's Jerusalem. It has to be a particular locus that is the temple. So let us read, beginning with verse 14, all the way to verse 17. Together, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what it is, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. 성전 안에서 소와 양과 비둘기 파는 사람들과 돈 바꾸는 사람들이 앉아 있는 것을 보시고 노끈으로 채찍을 만들사 양이나 소를 다 성전에서 내쫓으시고 돈 바꾸는 사람들의 돈을 쏟으시며 상을 엎으시고 비둘기 파는 사람들에게 이르시되 이것을 여기서 가져가라 내 아버지의 집으로 장사하는 집을 만들지 말라 하시니 제자들이 성경 말씀에 주의 전을 사모하는 열심히 나를 삼키리라 한 것을 기억 what a graphic scene. Right now, I'm writing a book uh, that deals with the whole incarnation of Jesus and how that becomes a paradigm, a model for us to imitate and follow. And one of the first requirements in studying the gospel stories of Jesus is that we need to learn to observe him in action. Now, we cannot know what is happening in his mind, but we can know through his action, through his behavior. But not many of us are in the business of meticulously analyzing the actions of Jesus. But here, I think he gives us plenty, plenty food for thought. And I was just meditating about this. Jesus walks in. He's now walking around the court of the temple. That is not the temple itself, not the holy sanctuary itself, but it's the court. And they were divided into many different sectors. At the very outskirt was the court of the Gentiles, then the court of the women, then the court for Jewish men, and then the court for the priest. And then you enter into the holy place. Okay? And so Jesus is walking around and checking out the vicinity of the temple. And he begins to see some very disturbing scenes and his heart becomes fired up with a sense of anger and wrath at what is happening so what does he do the bible says he makes a whip out of cords i don't know where he got those cords but probably picked up those raw materials in that marketplace of the courtyard and then he begins to meticulously, premeditatedly make a whip. Now, his disciples were observing Jesus. Every aspect of Jesus' move. 
And what do you think is going on in his mind? He knows exactly what he's going to do. He's not, he's not doing this action of cleansing the temple out of a whim, out of uh, the passion of the moment. He's not. He's deliberately and meticulously playing out his role as the Messiah. And so he's taking the whip, and then he and drives all the animals away. And he takes his hands and just wipes the table clean up. All these coins, scattered them, all piled up in a neatly, orderly way. And then he even overturns the table. I don't think Jesus injured anybody. I don't even think he even injured the animals. He just wanted to drive them out. Now, sometimes we in the modern days, we take this scene and try to apply it directly to ourselves and we declare revolution or we declare liberation, we declare some kind of radical moves which affect the lives of the people. Sometimes government is turned over as a result of this. Sometimes economy is changed as a result of that. And I believe there's some truth to all of this, no doubt about that. But how Jesus did it and how we in the modern days oftentimes do it may be quite contrary in nature. Jesus didn't make a habit of doing this. He had a clear, definitive action in mind, and he was playing that out, prophetically speaking. He was being like an Old Testament prophet emerging on the scene. But he was greater than those prophets because he was the Messiah. Now, we realize when we compare this story with other stories in the synoptic gospels, or the gospels that see with a similar eyes, similar perspective, um, that the other gospels talk about this scene and places this scene at the end of Jesus' ministry years. But here in John, it is placed at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry years. And so theologians and scholars were all troubled by this, uh, this uh, uh, situation that causes us to ask the question whether Jesus did this at the beginning or at the end, either or. But what most conservative scholars are coming to conclusion is that he probably did it twice. Why not? At the very beginning of his ministry, to make a point that the Messiah is in the business of doing that. And at the very end of his ministry, again making a point, this is what I'm in the business of doing. So I don't have any problem believing that Jesus did it twice. But what infuriated Jesus so much that he would engage in such an action for which the Jewish rulers, the priests, and the Sanhedrin, the council, will try to hold him accountable, and from then on, they'll be very suspicious of Jesus. Why did Jesus do or engage in this type of action? I don't know whether we can apply this to the present-day church situation. Have you ever been to a church where you walk into a church and um, uh, everything's so noisy and smelly and, uh, and so crowdy and so chaotic, you know? And you really want to go there to meet God and because that's what the church sanctuary is all about. But you have to make your way into it because in the uh, hallway, there's so much hustle and bustle. 
Have you ever see, been to a church where they have set up all these tables and maybe even little shops here and there, and people are exchanging money constantly, money, and then we have cafes nowadays, you know, Starbucks in the church, and so they're exchanging money and all that. And you're trying to make your way through this. First of all, let me get a cup of coffee, and then, uh, you know, pay for that cup, and then, and then enter in. And have you, in the process, maybe forgot to prepare your own tithe or offering? You know, and forget the purpose why you're there at the church? Now, I'm saying all this not to make a point that we should not do all that. I believe there's a reason for doing all of that, to make life more convenient for people who are having hectic, hectic lifestyle, and then suddenly on Sunday they want to have some Sabbath rest. And all of these are there for convenience sake. But the problem is, when these factors become hindrances or obstacles, temptations for the people, so that they cannot really focus on why they came to the church in the first place, or for these people in Jesus' days going to the temple in the first place, then I think Jesus would get quite infuriated quite upset about the whole thing. Because Jesus is always in the business of bringing forth the essence of things. This is not the essence of things. Just attending the temple once a year with your uh, entire family and just enjoying the scene and just going through the motion, going through the formality, this is not what it's about. And so Jesus probably wanted to make a clear point as to what the essence of temple worship is about. Another thing I think Jesus was really disturbed, I think this was the real reason, because according to the text, um, verse 14, it says, In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Selling and exchanging money. Kind of like what we see in the marketplace. That was going on, but that's not even the issue. Most commentators know that the scene in those days was perhaps, the problem was perhaps that of exploitation. And Jesus was perhaps thinking about all these Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism, or all these people from the diaspora uh, nations, they were coming to Jerusalem for the festival, or people who made long journey, even from like Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, coming to worship God, and they're getting exploited. Now, how are they getting exploited? Well, first of all, we know that when they came to the temple, they needed to make sacrifices, but it's very difficult to bring your own animals and traverse such a long way to bring the sacrifices. So what they usually ended up doing was purchasing the sacrificial animals. And by the way, the sacrificial animals had to be blemishless, especially the lamb, the sheep that was to be sacrificed. And there were inspectors watching to see whether they are qualified. So you could get disqualified in any of these steps in the process of coming and bringing your offerings to God. So if you're disqualified, what do you have to do? You have to purchase at the purchase price. 
at the market, the animals that you need to give unto the Lord. And how many of you know, if you've traveled a lot, and I just traveled to Bali and came back, the price at the airport is so much more than what you can find out in the streets. Same product, maybe packaged a little more in a sophisticated way, and they sell it at twice or three times the value. And that was probably what was happening. And these businessmen were exploiting the poor people who just wanted to worship God. And then, let's go back to the text. Then, there were those who were exchanging money. What's going on here? Where because most of the currencies they brought from outside were Roman coins or some foreign coins, and the temple authorities would not accept that. It had to be the Jewish coin and especially the temple shekels. And so they had to exchange that. In the process, they were being exploited once again. And they could charge 50% or 100% for the exchange rate. And so Jesus is watching all of this and he got to a point where he cannot stand it anymore. And he makes the whip and then he swipes at all that's around him with an act of purging the temple. Let's look at verse 16 and 17 once again. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Next. According to Mark, in chapter 11, verse 17, it says, And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. House of God, the temple, signifies a place of worship and prayer, a relationship with God, where they can get connected, reconnected to God. And this place was available for all nations, even for the Gentiles. But what some scholars are saying is the area where they, were, they set up the market was probably the court of the Gentiles. Because Gentiles are like dogs. We can treat them like dogs. And the animals were uh, mooing and cooing. And they were you know, relieving themselves and urinating and their smell and stench and all that. Well, the Gentiles can have that. But the whole message behind the gospel is to, to get not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, the people of all nations, into the kingdom of God. And to do that, they have to step into the court and then head towards the temple. And they need to give sacrifice unto the Lord. And that's why the disciples remember that Jesus as the Messiah in accordance to, with Psalm 69.9. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. 주의 집을 위하여 열성이 나를 삼키고 주를 비방하는 비방이 내게 미쳤나이다. So Jesus remembered this word, and he applied this messianic word to his context.
So what should we do? How should we apply this text to our lives and to our ministries, to our workplaces, to our family life? I think it is very simple. Locus has to do with that sort of realm in which we are worshiping God or giving our prayers unto the Lord. And all of those realms must be questioned whether we're doing it for the money, we're doing it for some personal gain, we're doing it out of greed or fame, or is it purely to get people to focus on Jesus Christ, to focus on God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? I know that our church is small. We have a small community. And sometimes we have more visitors than the members. But what we try to do every Sunday is try to make this place. I know the worship leaders and the media uh, person and everybody else is trying to make this really work so that we can all really focus purely on Jesus. So there's no one superstar, one, one head honcho who's going to you know, uh, save the day during Sunday worship. No. We could botch. We can make mistakes. We can falter. My message might not be so in tune. But as long as we have the right heart and we have the right preparation, right atmosphere, then I believe that we avoid the possibility of Jesus coming in with a whip and that's not what you want. You don't want that happening in your life, in your family's life, in your church's life, in your work life. You don't want Jesus doing this. No way. Jesus is watching. He is watching us. <laughs> he really is. And he's waiting. He's testing us out. And this is what we see in this text. The second point that I want to make is perhaps more relevant to us. And that is Jesus is in the business of preparing his own body as the new locus of communion with God. 예수님은 그의 몸을 새로운 장소로 세우신다. 새로운 영역으로 세우신다. 새로운 중심지로 세우신다. 이렇게 우리가 생각하면 좋겠습니다. Let's read beginning with verse 18 all the way to 22. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And they had the right to ask him of that. What on earth? Who do you think you are? We have this tradition for all these uh, seasons and, and centuries, and you coming in and taking action like this? By what authority are you doing this? Verse 19, together. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Why did Jesus say this? It is so confusing. If I spoke like this, in, with, with this kind of uh, words, which maybe like a riddle or something that a connotation which maybe perceived or understood wrong, my, my daughters, especially Michelle, would get on me. Dad, what are you talking about? But Jesus does that so often. He's obviously not talking about the temple, but why did he have to mention the temple anyway? 
And because of this, he gets accused of blasphemy later. And the Jewish rulers use this kind of incident to drive a wedge between him and rest of the people. And that becomes a cause to get him crucified. What I think, first of all, Jesus wanted to make a radical point at this point. He knew that people are not going to understand it until after his death and the resurrection. So his, his body that he's talking about, that is being destroyed, will be his own body hanging on the cross, being devastated, demolished before the side of the whole world. He wanted to make that point. The second thing that he wanted to make point was this. The important thing is not the physical temple. The temple built by man. Important thing is the temple that he himself signifies in his body. He is the temple that we are to enter into. We are to enter into union with the body of Christ. You see, in Christian theology, we have a Reformation theologian here. I'm so glad because I was thinking about it. I heard that Esther will be coming, and I said, what? can I say? Can I say something that's kind of related to the Reformation, maybe to Martin Luther or John Calvin? And John Calvin just happens to be one of my favorite, favorite authors and theologians. So the thing that I really like about John Calvin is that he places Jesus Christ at the center of everything. Okay? And basically, I think what John Calvin, correct me, professor, if I'm wrong, but what he what John Calvin seems to be advocating is this. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no way you could possibly relate to God. In a general way, you can, but not in a specific way, not in a redemptive way. You cannot know God for who He truly is apart from Jesus Christ. And the unique thing about Jesus Christ is that He is both God and man. Therefore, He can be the true mediator who can draw God and link us to him. Because he is God-man, he can link God and humanity together. But how does he do that? He does it through his body, through his humanity. If Jesus didn't have the body, we cannot see him. We cannot perceive him. We, can, we cannot relate to him. He had to come in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. Word was God. And the word became flesh, as we study in, in first chapter. And so by entering into a state of union with the person of Jesus Christ, who has a body, who has a flesh, we can finally understand that to commune with God is none other than to enter into this kind of intimate relationship with Jesus Christ to a point that we can say we have entered into union, a state of union with him. And wherever Jesus is, wherever we are with Jesus, that is the temple, that is the place of worship. I want to share with you a number of texts from the writings of Paul which will give us another dimension that is related to the very body of Christ. According to Paul, the body of Christ can be Jesus' body, but also the body of Christ 
can be us who have entered into that state of union with Christ. And so we ourselves also become the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So how can we understand the temple? Temple, the literal physical building temple that Solomon built. And later when it got demolished, then through Zerubbabel, after they returned back to Jerusalem, Zerubbabel built. And now Herod, the king, wants to uh, renovate this, this facility, that building. But Jesus says, that building is going to get demolished. That's just a, a shadow. That's just a foreshadowing of what is to come. And that's me. I appear. I am the temple. My body is the temple. And you, by entering into relationship with me, you become the temple. And the Spirit of God will enter into you, and you will become a residing place, a dwelling place of God. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, then, if Jesus cleansed the temple and purged the temple because it has become impure, it has been polluted, then how much more he's in the business of cleansing our hearts, cleansing our inner source, and cutting that out of all the debris, all the unnecessary baggages and hindrances from us truly worshiping God. Amen? Amen. And so this leads me to the third point, that Jesus is in the business of discerning and confirming the hearts of the people. 예수님은 사람의 마음을 분별하며 확인하신다. Let's read uh, verses 23 to 25. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. In Korean, 6월절에 예수께서 예루살렘에 계시니 많은 사람이 그의 행하시는 표적을 보고 그의 이름을 믿었으나 예수는 그의 몸을 그들에게 의탁하지 아니하셨으니 이는 친히 모든 사람을 아시며 또 사람에 대하여 누구의 증언도 받으실 필요가 없었으니 이는 그가 친히 사람의 속에 있는 것을 아셨음이니라. 아멘. Also, after this incident at the temple, Jesus must have performed all sorts of miracles that John does not talk about. But people witnessing that, they wanted to give their hearts to Jesus. They wanted to believe unto Jesus. And so they did. But the funny thing is, here, according to this text, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. He did not trust them. Now, what's going on? I thought the whole idea of signs and wonders and miracles and showing the power of God is to draw the people, draw the crowd. But what we see in the subsequent chapters in the Gospel of John is that 
Once Jesus started talking about the cross and talking about the cost of discipleship, people started leaving Jesus, forsaking Jesus, abandoning Jesus. You know, there are people who rush to church and rush to God because of the benefits that we receive. And we will receive benefits, no doubt about that. If I'm poor and I need money and I'm in a financial jam and I cannot turn to anything else or anyone else, I may turn to God and God may provide and save my neck. If I'm injured and, and uh, if I am plagued by some kind of disease and perhaps a terminal disease and I have no, no other hope, Crying out to God may bring some kind of miraculous healing to my bodies and I can serve the Lord better as a result of that. Great things can happen. Great benefits can be received from Jesus. But the problem is this. Christianity is not just receiving things from God, not just being blessed because I prayed. Christianity has another factor and that is the cost of discipleship. Now, Jesus does it for me, but what am I doing for Jesus? And if Jesus demands that certain things be done, am I willing to make the sacrifice to do that in obedience and submission to Jesus Christ? So in Christianity, we say we do not accept Jesus only as our Savior. We must accept Him as our Lord and Master who can demand on us certain things. He has the right to do that. He may not be demanding anything from us, us, in the present, a time will come when we're going to have to make sacrifices because Jesus will call on us to make those sacrifices. You see, most people in those days, they did not understand that. Even the disciples of Jesus, they had certain agendas in their minds. Of They wanted Jesus to do certain things, perform certain things, prove that they're in the right team, prove that they are the real thing. But then when Jesus kept on talking about the cross and the sacrifices, they started losing hearts as well. So Jesus realizes this. And so what he does is he continues to test us and prove us. He turns up the fire underneath us. And so that we can be purged of all sorts of arterial motives and reasons for believing in Jesus so that our faith may be purified, our love may be genuinely proven to be true. And so this is a good word. And I don't think this applies only to those people, not me. I believe that this word applies to each and every one of us. Jesus would not entrust himself to Daniel for he knew Daniel. He knew what was in Daniel's heart. Can you trust me? Can I work things out? Can I improve myself? Can I consecrate more before the presence of the Lord? Can I surrender myself more so that he can truly trust me at the end? Perhaps he trusts me to a degree. But can he trust me more? And that's why he puts me through testing to see whether I can or not. 
So this is a good thing. It's not like he's testing us to see whether um, you know, we, we accept him as our Savior and Lord. He tests us to see whether we really understand the meaning and the implications of believing him as our Savior and Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard words that we receive from the Lord. And we have witnessed a most violent action of our Lord. We're so familiar with Jesus who is so gentle and meek and kind and nice, but we have not seen this side of Jesus. But the amazing thing is, according to John, this Jesus comes way at the beginning of his ministry. This is now reserved for some elite Christians or Christian giants, but Lord, for little individuals like us. And you're saying, Lord, you want genuine relationship with us. You want that relationship be, to be tested and proven and refined like pure gold. And so, Lord, you do not just leave us as we are. You accept us, you forgive us, you're merciful to us, you give us second chances over and over, but you do not leave us as we are. You work on us. And you continue to cultivate us, transform us. Lord, do that work of purification and purging in our hearts and minds. If we are going about doing things in the wrong way or thinking in the wrong way or having deep, unsurrendered sin issues in our lives, Father, even this week, we ask that you would expose us and cleanse us and transform us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.